quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Don't try to pay it all off at the beginning. You want to just try to purchase as much as you can with the amount of money you have. And obviously not try to over leverage, do what you're comfortable with, but real estate grows over time. Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest, Ryan Chaw. Ryan is joining us from Sacramento, California. He is a full-time pharmacist who invests in student housing. Ryan is a GP on 27 doors across six properties. Ryan, thank you for joining us. And how are you today? Hey, I'm doing great, Ash. Thanks for inviting me on the podcast, man. Ryan, we're glad to have you here. Before we get started, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Yeah, so I actually graduated as a pharmacist in 2016, and I was inspired by my grandpa who bought a couple properties in the San Francisco Bay Area back in the 50s when they were like dirt cheap. And as we all know, the price of those houses went up like crazy, and he was able to retire early, and not only that, but also help fund part of my college education and that of my brothers. So I realized that real estate's the best way to create generational wealth. And basically, I just wanted to get started as soon as possible. I saved up a lot of money. I worked two jobs. I worked a lot of overtime. I was eating like $5 footlongs for the first two years. And I amassed $100,000 during the first year and a half or so. And that's when I bought my very first property. It was a single family home in Stockton, California for $262,000. And it was in my local college town. So basically what I did is I repurposed these single family homes as student housing as a rent by the room co-living situation, kind of like pad split in a way. So basically, I rent out each room for $600 to $700 per month. And that means that a five-bedroom place would make me around $3,100, and a six-bedroom place would make me around $3,600 or $3,700 per month. I basically bought one per year. Now I'm at six properties with 29 tenants, and I make $17,580 per month in rental income after just the course of five to six years or so. And do you live in a house or are you renting? I'm actually house hacking. So this house that I'm living in right now, I'm just basically living in the master bedroom. The other tenants pay about $36.50 per month in rent. And my mortgage is about $2,300. So I'm making about $1,300 and minus some expenses, of course. But yeah, I'm basically living here for free. On top of that, I get a $1,300 per month bonus, right? That's awesome. So you're living in one of your rentals, yes, so to speak. That's correct. Yep. Are you still a full time pharmacist? I'm a part time now. So I work 32 hours. So four days a week. But basically what happened is when I started out as a pharmacist, I would see these 50 year old pharmacists. One of them gave me a tour around the facility and I asked him, you guys make a good amount as a pharmacist, right? When are you going to retire? He said, dude, I can't retire. I got bills to pay. And I'm basically going to be here till I'm 65. I'm pretty much here just to collect my paycheck at this point. So I realized looking at all these older pharmacists who are tired of working, I realized that I didn't want that for myself. I didn't want to work nine to five until I hit 65. I wanted to create financial freedom for myself so that I can be able to do what I want, where I want, with whom I wanted to, wherever I wanted to do it with. So that was my goal for getting into real estate. So you, the first two years... You worked your butt off. You saved a lot of money. 
Now, I assumed you would either go all in on real estate or you would just keep working hard and just go all in on everything. Why are you working 32 hours a week? Why not 60 or why not zero? Yeah, that's a great question. So actually next year I do plan to retire. I'll be around 31 by then. So I'm going to probably just sell one of my properties, pay off the loans on a couple of properties just for peace of mind. So I know that, hey, I don't have a mortgage payment on these properties, but I'm still getting really good rental income and really good cash flow on the properties. So actually next year I do plan on retiring. But with that being said, I did put in five years for schooling as a pharmacist. And I still want to use my license here and there, maybe work one day a week or something like that. But at that point, I can choose. I don't have to be stuck. Even as a pharmacist where we make a good amount of income, I still see everyone's working until they're 65. In order to create financial freedom for yourself. You can't just work nine to five. You have to do something on the side. You have to be an investor or be an entrepreneur and start a business because the nine to five, even with six figures income, it's just not going to cut it. Ryan, I'm going to push back a little bit. When you sell one of your properties next year, the remaining income that you have coming in, is that what you're good with for here on out? Yeah, actually, the first house I bought, I said it was two sixty-two thousand, right? Because I live in California, I know it's across the nation, but especially in California, I had quite a lot of appreciation. So my first house is now worth four hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So it basically doubled in price. So I'm going to be selling that to pay off three loans, and those three houses that have the loans on them, they make about twenty-five hundred to thirty-two hundred dollars in rental income each. So after taxes, insurance, and all that type of stuff, I'm still making about $8,000 per month in rental income from those houses and some of the other houses that I'm cash flowing on. And is that your goal, just live on $8,000 from here on out? Definitely not, no. So I'm always going to be expanding my portfolio, growing. I'm going to probably get into doing crowdfunding deals as well because I have some people I met that are really interested in crowdfunding student housing and they feel like it's a great space to get into because you're basically doubling or tripling your cash flow on these deals while the students are basically cutting their rent in half because on-campus dormitories, they usually charge $1,200 while we're only charging $600 or $700. So it's a blue ocean market. Basically, it's an untapped market. There's a ton of potential in it. And I think anyone could get started in this field. All right. So I'm a little confused on why you're going to sell one of your properties if you're wanting to continue to grow and scale. And then even more so on why you're going to pay off the loan on another one. Yeah. What's, so it's what's the mindset of, behind that? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to use it to pay off the primary loan on it, but I also have a couple HELOCs on it in case I needed to expand. So I actually got two HELOCs this year, home equity line of credits for $200,000. And I can use that as seed money to invest in these partnerships, crowdfunding ventures as well. But I want to pay off the houses because I want to have some peace of mind. I don't want to be over leveraged. I want to have a portfolio where I own a good chunk of it. So I don't feel like, okay, if the real estate market's going to crash or anything, I'm going to be in trouble. With that being said, I invest in a very strong asset. I believe in this asset 100% because the college that I invest there has been around since 1850 and it's not going to go away anytime soon. So I know I'm going to constantly get tenants. And plus the other cool thing about this is, sorry, I'm kind of going on. No, please uh, do. But the college has about 6,000 students. 
and I have only 28 of those students, right, at my house. That's less than 1% of the total market share. And I'm fine with that because I'm making multiple six figures from just having less than 1% of the total student housing market share. All right, Ryan, I'm going to keep playing devil's advocate here. When I hear people say, I'm going to retire and I'm going to sell my house off this way, they can never take it from me. It's mine. I own it. That's a false sense of security because if you miss enough property tax payments, they're going to take your house. That's correct. That's right. So I get into these conversations a lot with people that are retiring. And when I have these conversations with investors like yourself, young investors, I'm thinking in the back of my mind, so in two years, you're going to go get another loan for your next property and you're going to crowdsource it potentially. That loan is probably going to be at six and a half or 7% interest. And right now you're paying off a loan that's probably three, 4% interest. Yeah, that's correct. That's another thing to keep in mind. Crowdfunding, I would say it's like six, 7% preferred. And then on top of that, there's the upside split. But for me, I'm very comfortable making $8,000 per month in rental income. And you make a very good point for those who aren't comfortable with how much they're making and just base rental income that's guaranteed, then it makes sense to continue to purchase using the very, very, very low interest rate conventional financing that we have available. Now, with that being said, interest rates are definitely rising for conventional financing. I think they've hit at least five and a half percent for investment property right now, while crowdfunding, it's one or two percent more. But here's the thing about crowdfunding. You don't have to put in as much as your own. I could put down two percent on that whole deal and crowdfund the rest. Basically crowdfund the 20% down and then have the other 80% be funded by some investment bank at a five, 6% interest rate. So I wasn't clear about where I was going with this. Let's take the crowdsourcing, crowdfunding out of this. Hmm. Let's just say you, Ryan, you want to continue to scale. So in five years, how many units do you think you'll have? In five years, I'll probably be sitting around somewhere between 10 to 15 to 20. I don't want to put a cap on it, of course. Okay. Right now, I'm already going to be buying two more this year, probably two more next year with the HELOC that I took out, which is $200,000. Okay. Which is, again, why I'm baffled that you're going to sell a property. All your goals, you're screaming, you want to continue to scale and grow. You want to be at 10 plus units in five years. Why are you selling? For me, again, it's the peace of mind. I want to play both games where basically I want to scale. I want to continue to grow, obviously, but I want to also have enough paid off so I have enough cash flow so that I could have that financial freedom. So if I wanted to, I guess I I could purchase two per year or so. And then at the end of two or three years, I would reach my goal of $8,000, $9,000 per month in cash flow. Or I could just sell my very first house, which is completely paid off already to pay off three loans. And I'm in a position now where I feel safe that I don't have mortgages on these properties and I can continue to use the HELOCs to purchase other properties. All right. And I know you didn't expect this to be a debate on selling properties versus scaling. But it's a great conversation that I have with so many people. And believe it or not, it's probably easy to believe. I'm not the smartest person out there, but I struggle with the same thing for a long time. I would pay extra on my properties and I had an epiphany. It was a conversation that I had with an old time commercial real estate investor. This guy bought shopping centers, 80 years old. 
And his philosophy was always, whenever you build up enough equity through appreciation, do a cash out refine, keep pulling cash out. And I never understood that because how do you really build equity if you're just taking cash out all the time? But at the end of the day, taking that cash out, reinvesting it in other properties, or even just sitting on it, it decreases your liability exposure. So if you have a $5 million strip mall that's paid off and an attorney is representing somebody that slipped and fell, they're salivating because that equity is there for them. If you owe $5 million on it and it's worth $5 million, they're going after the insurance proceeds and that's it, right? So that was his reasoning for doing that. But that really made me think about why I'm overpaying on properties. So after probably months of having my wheels turn and looking at different scenarios, Mm -hmm. I started doing cash out refis. And at the time, I didn't have a place to put the cash. I didn't have any deals in the pipeline, Mm -hmm. but I sat on it. And then when the time came to find deals or when I finally did find deals, I had the cash ready to go, right? So again, if you do your two, five, 10-year projections, I think selling this property may give you a sense of safety. I think it goes against what you're trying to accomplish. And this is a conversation that I've had with so many people. And I want you to think about that for a second. Again, this is my opinion. This is not fact. I'm not telling you what's right or wrong. And best ever listeners, by all means, comment and tell me I'm wrong. But again, if we're looking to scale, I would recommend talking to other operators that have scaled significantly and get their take on what you're doing. Yeah, I think it's definitely an age old debate. Should you pay off your properties really quickly so you have more cash flow per property, but you also have more liability if someone were to sue you and take all the equity that you have on the property? Or should you leverage as much as possible? Don't hold any cash, basically have as little equity as you can on these properties, but still have control over all the properties. So it's definitely a good debate. Yeah. And I'm not saying over leverage. So if you want to cash out refi, do it. I'm not saying spend every last dollar on as many properties as you can. Make sure you have a comfortable nest egg. You have comfortable reserves. So if something does go wrong, you're not beholden to foreclosures and the banks. So by all means, do not over leverage. And that's another lengthy debate anybody can have, but I'm not an advocate of over leveraging. So don't get me wrong. Everybody needs that safety net of cash. I just don't think having that safety net tied up in an asset that you can borrow at three, 4% is a right thing to do. But let's get back to your rentals. Student housing, have you considered short-term rentals instead or in addition? Yeah, definitely. I was interested and intrigued by that. I would say short-term rentals are definitely good for more like vacation homes or areas where people vacation like near beaches and all of that. I might eventually go into that, to be honest, but I just don't like the maintenance part of it. I could definitely hire out for that, but trying to manage all of that and what if we get a party group or something and they destroy the property. For me, student housing, I have a lot of control over what tenants I bring in. I can screen them. I could see their social media and look through to see what type of student they are. I also only invest in colleges that are top 
colleges where you have to have straight A's, 4.0 GPA, well-rounded, all that type of stuff. So most of the students that I have, they're like the perfect tenant base. Very low maintenance. They can handle a lot of things themselves. They even have parents to help clean up after them if needed. And the parents are the one paying the rent. So I never have to worry about not getting rent paid. We'll get back to the show with the first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. When it comes to scaling your real estate business, is lack of capital holding you back? Raising private capital on demand can be a major challenge, but you can get the knowledge and tools you need to succeed when you attend Dana Cornell's four-week Raise Capital Masterclass Live. After starting out with no capital or relationships, Dana has raised over $1 billion twice in the past 20 years. And he has made it his mission to share the best of what he's learned with business owners and investors like you. You can learn more at danacornell.com forward slash best ever. Dana's Raise Capital Masterclass Live allows you to immediately unlock and raise capital on demand, drastically increasing your business's growth. If you're ready to take your business to the next level, go to danacornell.com forward slash best ever to enroll today. I'd like to introduce you to my good friends over at PassiveInvesting.com, a private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. PassiveInvesting.com makes it easy for you to start investing in real estate. They focus on acquiring institutional quality apartments and self-storage facilities with private accredited investor funds. They also have a real estate debt fund that offers hard money loans to local fix and flippers across the U.S., which currently has a 0% default rate. With a portfolio of over $700 million in assets and controlling over $250 million in equity, they know how to secure the best deals and how to avoid the red flags. If you are interested in learning more, please reach out directly to PassiveInvesting.com and request the free Passive investor guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. When you say clean up after them, you mean pay their rent when they can't. Also, if they're a person who's really messy, right? I've Uh actually had parents come in and actually vacuum the whole house and everything. I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Top student, top college and mom's coming to vacuum your apartment. (laughs) Interesting. So student housing is very competitive. How are you finding deals? It is at the commercial level. I would say what I do is I kind of repurpose a single family home. So I'll buy a, a big single family home, usually like 1900, 2000 plus square foot. And then I'll add in the bedrooms where there's like an extra family room, or if I can divide the living room in half. And you got to realize that these students don't need all that much space because most of the time they're at school or they're at the library and studying, or they're out with their friends or whatever, they usually just come home to eat and sleep. And I've never had anybody really complain about the lack of space. I still have one common area, but anything else like a a family room, a library, an office, they don't need all that space. So I just convert that into a bedroom. And for them, they have a lot more space compared to the dormitory still. They have a kitchen, they have the backyard, the garage, they have storage space and, and all that still. And they are paying half the rent. So it just makes so much sense. It's a win-win situation for everyone. So you can afford to overpay on a house because everybody else is looking at comps and you're looking at the income that you can have coming in from it. Exactly. So I'll buy a $300,000 house, but make the cash flow as if I bought like a $500,000 house. What's been your biggest challenge with this model? Oh, that's a good question. 
I would say there's actually not too many challenges. Sometimes if my contractor might have a lot of work to do, like if I'm buying two or three rentals at a time, he can only work on one at a time. So I have to look for more and more contractors. And a lot of contractors have definitely been getting tied up during this time. It's been hard to get material sometimes. But other than that, I haven't had too many challenges using this model. At the very beginning, I did because I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to advertise. So I couldn't find students, believe it or not, at the very beginning because I just didn't know where to advertise. Then I discovered over time where I could post my ads. And once I built up to a certain scale, I could just rely on referrals. So I have 28 tenants. Each one of those tenants has maybe three friends that might be interested in staying at the property, all of a sudden I have 90 people potentially who could be interested in staying at my property. If I just asked them, hey, do you have any friends who want to come and stay for the next year? Ryan, you said when you figured out how to advertise, what was that? Yeah. So I actually have something called the prime method for advertising. So it's P-R-I-M-E. P stands for placement of advertisements. So you have to go to where your tenants hang out. So for me, that Facebook groups, college Facebook groups, Facebook housing groups, it could be bulletin boards on campus. It could be through maybe one of the newsletters or their off-campus listings on the web. It depends on the college. So you have to go where they are looking. Otherwise, you're fishing in an empty pond. If you put a sign on the lawn saying for rent, that's basically like fishing in an empty pond and you'll get all sorts of people calling you that aren't students. And then R stands for reviewing social media. So I go through their Facebook profiles to see what type of tenant they are. Are they smoking? They're doing drugs. Are they going to a bunch of raves and partying, that type of tenant? Or are they somebody who is an the dean's honor roll, or they look very studious, they are very serious about their studies, they're getting their doctorate degree, something like that. I stands for identify the type of tenant from basically how you're communicating with you. So if they're constantly asking for a cheaper deal, or if they're difficult to communicate with, or they get angry easily, I try to stay away from those types of tenants. M stands for measure responsiveness. I find that the more responsive a tenant is, the more responsible they are overall. So if they're getting back to me right away with the paperwork and everything, I can tell that they're professional, they're responsible type of tenant. And then E stands for insuring proof of income. I ask for the last two month bank statements from the parents and the FICO score, the credit score as well, if they'll be paying for the rent, or they can also provide student loan docs if that's what they're going to use to pay the rent or financial aid or pay stubs if they have a job or something like that. How important is the timing? Because I remember when I had student rentals, I got them ready a month before the semester started Mm-hmm. and nothing. I couldn't get any tenants because I later realized all the tenants for September have secured their apartments by March. That's correct. So this is actually peak advertising season right now. So I start advertising end of March, beginning of April or so, and I basically fill my rentals from August to August. With that being said, you can still buy definitely during the middle of the year. And I've bought as late as October. I bought in February slash March time. I bought in summer. I bought all over during those times. The thing is, these students, they have three sessions. They have fall, spring, and summer sessions usually. So there's always going to be somebody who's looking for a place to stay because they're either moving out of their spring semester housing, going into summer housing or whatever. So I always have people interested during 
whichever season. With that being said, it's important to advertise as soon as you can. So as soon as I basically have my offer accepted, I start advertising. I ask my current tenants, do they have anybody who they can refer, anybody interested? And then I just advertise for the whole time from when your offer is accepted to closing and I advertise while I'm doing renovations. And then eventually after a month and a half or two months, I should have somebody in by the end of when I put in the bedrooms and everything is all done. Yeah. Something I also learned is that there's student accessible systems only for each campus. Mm -hmm. So I had a tenant moving out and what I would always do is give them some kind of bonus if they can find the next tenant upon them moving out. Mm -hmm. And one of them is like, oh yeah, I'll just put an ad out in this system. And I'm like, what is that? She said, it's a student only system for that campus that nobody from the outside has access to. So you now have a captive audience with a lot less competition. Do you have anything like that, that you can utilize? Yes, definitely. And that's the P for placement of advertising. So you have to do your market research. What I recommend you do actually at the beginning is to talk to as many students as you can and ask them, hey, how do you find off-campus housing? Hey, is there like an internal website where people go to look for housing and that type of stuff? Or where are the neighborhoods where a lot of students like to stay because they're safe neighborhoods? So doing the market research at the beginning is very important and definitely figure out that P because that's the most important part of marketing. Ryan, do you self-manage all of your properties? I do, actually. And I'm still working as a 32-hour pharmacist. I would say even when I was working overtime, I was still able to self-manage this. At the beginning, don't get me wrong, it was tough. I was getting calls during my lunch breaks on the weekends. I really hated it. But then over time, I learned how to empower my tenants, create systems, You have to realize after five years of doing this, there's certain things that always happen. Like I would say once a year or so, I will have a tenant versus tenant conflict where one says, oh, that girl, she's so messy. She brings her boyfriend over all the time. I hate it, that kind of thing. And I have a way of dealing with it very, very simply. It gets solved as soon as I send out that email, basically. So having systems in place and knowing how to empower your tenants is extremely important. What's in that email? First, have a face-to-face discussion with that tenant and come up with an actionable plan you can both implement, then implement the plan. And then two weeks later, if you're still having problems with them, then you can go ahead and contact me. I would say nine times out of 10 or 10 times out of 10, I never get contacted again because then they know to take responsibility at that point. And they know that we're doing the best we can. I'm not going to be able to convince them to do something that they aren't able to convince the other person to do themselves. That's great. And that's going above and beyond as a landlord. Do students typically pick out their roommates or do you just assign whoever's interested? So for that one, I usually try to keep people who mesh together together. So like if it's a group of friends, obviously I'll put them into one house together. A lot of times I'll get a group of pharmacy students or a group of dental students. So I'll basically have a pharmacy house, a dentist house, an engineering house, because they're all going through the same classes so they can study together and hang out together and all of that. I love that. That's cool. What's another example of empowering your tenants? Little things like if the internet goes down, for instance, I used to be the middleman guy. I would call up the internet company and say, hey, what's going on? And they would say, hey, you have to reset the router. So now I'll call up the tenant and say, reset the router. And then I have to call back the other guy and say, hey, I reset the router. And so I realized 
all I have to do is tell the internet company that this person is under my account so they can call you directly to go ahead and solve the internet issues. So I just tell the tenant, hey, call this number. They'll troubleshoot it with you. It should be up and running within an hour or two if you do all the troubleshooting steps. And so far, I've never had problems after that. Great example. Ryan, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? Get started as soon as possible. At the very beginning, like you mentioned, I think it's very important to try to leverage yourself. Don't try to pay it all off at the beginning. You want to just try to purchase as much as you can with the amount of money you have. And obviously not try to over leverage, do what you're comfortable with. But real estate grows over time. It's like planting seeds. You plant a seed, you watch it grow into a tree. So you don't wait to plant that seed. You want to try to plant as many seeds first and then wait five, 10 years and then see where it's gone. And over time, like over just five years, my houses have gone up $700,000 in just equity, just appreciation alone. And that's not including equity pay down that I got from the mortgage. That's not including the cash flow I was getting from these properties, all that type of stuff. With inflation coming on, we're able to raise the rents. But of course, we kind of have to because the materials are costing more and things like that as well. But with that being said, real estate grows over time. So you want to get in as soon as you can. Even if it's like house hacking with a three and a half percent down FHA loan on a duplex or triplex or whatever. Yeah, Ryan, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Sure, let's do it. All right, Ryan, what's the best ever book you recently read? I reread Rich Dad, Poor Dad, but I would say one of the best books on real estate investing is Gary Keller's Millionaire Real Estate Investor. It really goes over the whole mindset piece behind it and also the importance of creating teams, empowerment, all that type of stuff. Ryan, what's the best ever way you like to give back? The best ever way I like to give back. A lot of times, I actually, I give back to my tenants, believe it or not. I provide a lot of the cleaning supplies, but also a lot of them have questions for me as a pharmacist because they're going through pharmacy school. They're asking me, what do you recommend I do? This is my first year as a pharmacy student. What clubs should I join? All that type of stuff. And going through the school itself, I can give them great advice for that. So that's one way I kind of give back. To my tenants. And I feel yeah. like if you treat them very well and they have that respect for you and that trust for you, you're never going to have to worry about not getting tenants or getting tenants that get angry and don't pay their rent or something like that. I think it's very cool that you tutor them a little trust. bit, pharmacy students, but I think giving them cleaning supplies is self-serving. You just want to clean apartments clean house. <laughs> yeah, I do it. Yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> awesome. I, I do it once a year at the beginning of the year. Right? Yeah. And Ryan, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? So I have a website you can reach out to me at. I actually have a free PDF guide for how to get into student housing. And just like as a new investor, a lot of the things that I went through, a lot of the mistakes I made and how I solved them, you can access that at www.newbierealestateinvesting.com. That's www.newbierealestateinvesting.com. And newbie is spelled N-E-W-B-I-E. Oh, and to get the guide, sorry, it's www.newbierealestateinvesting.com slash guide. Awesome. Ryan, thank you so much for your time today, sharing your story of becoming a full-time pharmacist and building a rental portfolio at the same time, having your financial future laid out and engaging with me in a debate of cashing out, refining, selling. Thank you for your time today. All great questions. Thanks again, Ash. I really appreciate being on the show. 
best ever listeners thank you so much for joining us if you enjoyed this episode please leave us a five-star review share the podcast with someone you think can benefit from it also follow subscribe and have a best ever day